Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, January 27th. Now we conclude our six-part series, The Year of Bill and Rudy, How 1993 Helped Give Us the World of 2023. We began the series last Friday, the 30th anniversary of Bill Clinton's inauguration as president in 1993. Later that same year, Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor. So we've been asking this week, Why did America move left and the city move right at the same time? And how did those choices help give us the world and the issues we're living with today for better and for worse? So today we'll end the series with kind of an addendum because truth be told, it wasn't just the year of Bill and Rudy. It was the year of Bill, Rudy, and Newt. Many people trace to about that same time the rise of what we now consider the radical right, the MAGA right, the Donald Trump culture war and authoritarian right, choose your name for it. In fact, after Clinton ran on being this centrist kind of moderate new Democrat, right, he wasn't even in office one month when Gingrich said this about Clinton in a speech to the CPAC Conservative Political Action Conference. And essentially what you have is a Dukakis McGovern administration with an Arkansas accent. <clears throat> but the programs are, in fact, those of Dukakis and McGovern. Today they say Joe Biden is really a captive of Bernie Sanders and AOC. Back then, the scary liberal boogeymen were George McGovern and Michael Dukakis. And in that speech, not even a month into Clinton's presidency, Gingrich attacked Clinton's Health and Human Services Secretary, Dr. Donna Shalala, with a culture war premise that sounded like this as he hailed the superiority of American culture as he defined it. And it is, in fact, the most powerful civilization in in history if you measure by human opportunity, human choice, and human achievement. And I look forward to the day that Dr. Shalala is prepared to debate me in Tehran on whether Iranian or American civilization is better for women. It will be an exciting moment for the multiculturalists. So with a big cheer, it was game on between Gingrich, who was the number two Republican House member at the time, he'd later go on to be Speaker, and the new Democratic president. So let's discuss. We have two very special guests who have written books on exactly this topic. Nicole Hemmer, Vanderbilt University historian and author of a new book called Partisans, the Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. And we also have Steve Kornacki, who you may know best as MSNBC's election season numbers geek, showing us all the moving parts on electoral maps of votes and congressional districts and precincts reporting their votes early and later from neighborhoods within those electoral districts. He gets that granular. Steve Kornacki released a book in 2018 called The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. So, how exciting. We get to hear Nicole Hemmer and Steve Kornacki compare notes. Nicole and Steve, great to have both of you on the show again. Welcome back to WNYC. Wonderful. Thank you. Great to be here. Nicole, let me interrogate the premise a little first. Did the Republican Party really lurch to the right, like all of a sudden, in the 1990s? Or were Gingrich and Pat Buchanan, who we'll also talk about, 
and all of them just continuing on a curve established by President Ronald Reagan in the 80s, who he could argue was a primary race and culture war figure his whole time in office. So if we take a longer view, it is true that the Republican Party had been moving to the right for decades. Um, but there had been a particular strain in the conservative movement, particularly in the 1970s, this new right that identified with divisive cultural issues, um, opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, opposition to feminism, opposition to affirmative action and to immigration. And they are emerging in the 1970s, actually in opposition to Ronald Reagan. They thought that Ronald Reagan was too willing to compromise, that he was too willing to put his popularity ahead of conservative politics. And they're really emerging in the 1990s, coming out from under the shadow of the Reagan years with the intention to, to move the party significantly more to the right than it had been in the 1980s. Steve, same question. How much of a break from Ronald Reagan? How much of just the next phase? Yeah, I, I think that the next phase that you, you see sort of um, come into the focus in the 1990s is the nationalization of politics. I think that's the thing that Gingrich anticipated that he saw coming, that he saw opportunity in in, in, the, in the 1990s. He sort of um, found the fulfillment of his mission in, in, in 1994. And, and what Gingrich basically saw in the American political landscape when he soon started out, which is, you know, back in the 1970s, was two parties that, that, that each kind of lacked clear ideological definition. You know, if you think back to those days, we're going back 40, 50 years now, mm -hmm. you had genuinely conservative Southern Democrats who would have been to the right of many of the Republicans in Congress. And you had gen genuinely liberal Northern Republicans who would have been to the left of many Democratic members of Congress. And what Gingrich basically believed was that the define the Republican Party as a conservative, small government, anti-tax, individual freedom, these sorts of things, define the Republican Party around those themes, define the Democratic Party as the party of, you know, as he would call it, you know, the liberal welfare state, collectivism, all it's sort of the, the themes you were touching on there in the, the clips that you played. And what Gingrich saw was that media was changing and media was nationalizing and the rise of cable television was a big part of this. The rise of talk radio was a big part of this. And essentially what he envisioned was people voting in their each of these 435 congressional districts around the country, not based on the local concerns and whether the congressman brought home the bacon or the money for the bridge or whatever, but voting on those big national themes, clear uh, distinctions between the two parties. And he spent 15 years trying to drive and create those distinctions. And I think in the 1990s with Clinton coming in in 93, he had the kind of clash he'd been waiting for. Interesting. Nicole, a phrase we associate with Trump, America first, was used by isolationists who didn't want us to get into World War II long ago. But you also point out in your book um, that the culture war uh, warrior Pat Buchanan used it. He primaried President Bush from the right in the 1992 elections that contributed to Bush losing to Clinton. Here's Buchanan's most iconic moment along those lines from the 1992 Republican convention. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself. For this war is for the soul of America. And in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side, and George Bush is on our side. 
So that was after he lost the primary battle and was trying to make sure George Bush did get elected, which he didn't. But there's the one everybody knows, that clip. You've probably heard that before, almost no matter what age you are. But as another direct link to politics today, Buchanan also said this, starting with a reference to the Democratic convention that same summer. Like many of you last month, I watched that giant masquerade ball up at Madison Square Garden where 20,000 liberals and radicals came dressed up as moderates and centrists in the greatest single exhibition of cross-dressing in American political history. militant leader of the homosexual rights movement could rise at that same convention and say, Bill Clinton and Al Gore represent the most pro-lesbian and pro-gay ticket in history, and so they do. All right, a little hate speech from the podium uh, with a rousing affirmation from the crowd. Nicole, want to talk about Pat Buchanan's influence, or maybe more accurately, what part of the American people he represented? I think you put this in the context of a political void that was left on the right when the Cold War ended just before then in your book. That's right. You can't imagine somebody like Pat Buchanan sounding like he does in 1992 during the Cold War. In fact, during the Cold War, you have a Pat Buchanan who is talking about the value of undocumented immigrants and how hard they work and how important it is for the United States to be engaged in the world for the Cold War. When the Cold War ends, Pat Buchanan is unleashed. He starts to talk about how now that we've defeated communism, we now need to look at home and talk about the real flaws in democracy as a political system. So he is somebody who is playing around on the edges of the illiberal right. And he's also somebody who understands that in some ways, the two parties are in agreement on certain issues that the American public, or at least parts of the right, disagree with. In 1992, one of the big issues was the North America Free Trade Agreement. So this was something that um, Republicans had worked on under Bush that Bill Clinton would sign into law. And so he he was an anti-NAFTA candidate. Um, But as you heard in his speech, he was also someone who believed that the way that you won elections was not with that kind of sunny, optimistic, morning in America kind of message, but through very divisive polarizing politics. You put on the front burner the kinds of political issues that got people angry, got people fearful, and you put those at the heart of your politics. And then you pointed to the other party and you said, by the way, they're to blame. Even if they sound moderate, even if they sound like they're connecting with you, if they're empathetic, something that Clinton was very good at, um, they are in fact the source of all of these dangers in our culture. And so don't just need to be defeated in elections, but need to be defeated as a force in American life. Is there any evidence that Donald Trump was listening to and studying Pat Buchanan at that time? Because everything you just described applies in spades to Donald Trump today, right? Oh, it absolutely does. Now, he wasn't necessarily, he's never been kind of a student of politics in that sense, but he was somebody who was paying attention to the emergence of independence independent politics in the 1990s. So many listeners may know that in 2000, he runs against Pat Buchanan or or considers running against Pat Buchanan for the nomination of the Reform Party, which was Ross Perot's 
Party that comes out of the 1992 and 1996 campaigns. And so he is involved. He's aware. He's watching politics. I don't know that he was consciously modeling himself after Pat Buchanan. In 2000, he was out there pointing out Pat Buchanan's racism and the, the hatefulness of the Buchanan campaigns. But by the time you see Donald Trump in 2015, he has enough people around him who are working in that Buchanan mold. And that's very much where Trump ends up. There was no Fox News yet then. Uh, Steve referred a few minutes ago to the rise of cable television as a factor in Gingrich's strategy of nationalizing politics. And you in your book blame mainstream media networks, particularly CNN and PBS, for elevating Pat Buchanan and his culture war mobilization. How so? Oh, so there was this real switch in... uh news coverage and news commentary starting in the 1970s, where there was an emphasis on having kind of a a balance between left and right, that you would have somebody from the left and somebody from the right fighting it out. And this became particularly true in the 1980s. In 1982, CNN launches Crossfire with Pat Buchanan representing the right, um, and PBS launches the McLaughlin Group, um, which is a a roundtable that featured Pat Buchanan um, for much of its early history. And so there is this way that Pat Buchanan is being elevated as an avatar of the right, as a voice of the right, through media that aren't ostensibly or overtly conservative. And this is something that would continue into the 1990s. In 1996, both MSNBC and Fox News launch. And one of the things that they're focused on is developing the talent of conservative pundits, people like Laura Ingram, who gets her start on MSNBC, or Ann Coulter. And so there really is a way that outlets that we don't think of as conservative were responsible for shaping conservative punditry in the 1980s and 1990s. Steve, just as America loves watching you in front of your election night maps on TV, you address the geography of the political tribalism that's solidified in the 90s in your book. So here's another Gingrich example of that from that same February 1993 CPAC speech. You'll hear the subtext for sure as he's criticizing a Clinton spending package. In that package, as part of his thoughtful reinventing government stimulus, is a $28 million check to the government of the District of Columbia, a government peculiarly unworthy of that check, even by the standards of big cities. It rivals Detroit and Philadelphia as places that you really shouldn't send more money to because it just tempts them. Don't give money to D.C., Philadelphia, and Detroit. It just tempts them. Anti-urbanism with a thinly veiled anti-blackness, I think it's fair to say, reminiscent of Trump's big lie, right? Claiming with no evidence that all the fraud was in Detroit and Philadelphia, those same cities in states that he wanted to claim, Steve? Yeah, I I think the context there, you know, 30 years ago, one thing you have to remember is the centrality of crime, violent crime in American politics. You can find polls from 1993 and 1994. And this obviously in your series here is true in in New York City with the, the Dinkins Giuliani race. Um, or for that matter, Mario Cuomo losing the governorship in 1994 when George Pataki ran on the death penalty. Um, the potency of crime as a political issue um, in the early 1990s, I think, really kind of reached its peak. And then that's when the crime rate suddenly started dropping and then the politics evolved over the next generation. But what was happening in the early 1990s was there was an appeal there in that Gingrich speech and, and just more broadly in kind of the Republican messaging in, in, in the 1994 elections. Uh, around crime, around fears 
uh, particularly among suburbanites, about rising crime uh, in and around cities. And Republicans, one of the you know key reasons for their success in the 94 midterms was strength in the suburbs. Republicans at that point had traditionally done well in the suburbs. They did extremely well in the suburbs uh, in, in 1994. There, there was also a theme, again, this is a bit lost in history, but I mean, it's, it's part of what you've talked about in this series, uh, of, of even some urban areas moving to the right in in 93 and 94 not only did you have giuliani winning in new york city you had richard reardon a republican winning the mayoralty in los angeles you had just across the hudson river here in new york you had brett Schundler, a conservative republican uh who had won glowing praise from william f buckley winning the mayoralty in jersey city Mm -hmm. you had republicans having some success in urban areas as well again they were stressing heavily the issue of crime at that point what ended up happening long term and big picture was that when the Republicans got power, when Gingrich and the Republicans got power in the House in 1994, first time in 40 years, uh, it, it presented to America a new face of the Republican Party, um, much more Southern, much more sort of evangelical infused, much more culture warrior getting into this. Gingrich himself was obviously the face of it, and it created a reaction in those suburbs I'm talking about. And you start to see that reaction against the Republican Party, sort of on cultural grounds. You start to see it as early as the 1996 election when Bill Clinton gets reelected. Clinton's margin over Dole in 96 is not much different than his margin over Bush Sr. in 92. But the contours of the Clinton coalition change between 92 and 96. He makes his biggest gains in places like New Jersey, places like the Chicago suburbs, places like Fairfield County, Connecticut suburbs. Um, and it starts this this trend that I think has kind of reached its uh, it, its peak maybe a generation later, where the suburbs now have just been suburbs all across the country have just been on this journey from where they were once on pocketbook issues, Republican core areas to now on cultural grounds they are overwhelmingly and often in many cases democratic, and, and I think it's on cultural grounds, and I, I think that was sort of the start of it was the was the rise of. The, the Gingrich-style Republican in, in the mid-'90s. Nicole, by 1995, we have the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building by Timothy McVeigh. 168 people killed, including 19 children. 300 buildings in downtown Oklahoma City Oklahoma City were damaged. Can you draw a line from Gingrich-Buchanan rhetoric to that act of domestic terrorism and from that to the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers of today? Certainly there has been an interrelationship between a radicalization in politics and a radicalization in sort of extremist violence. We saw the growth of extremist violence in the U.S. starting in the late 1980s and into the 1990s. There was a moment around um, the federal government actions in at Ruby Ridge and Waco in the early 1990s that led to even more organizing among militias. And the connection with elected politicians and the Gingrich coalition comes in the form of representatives like Helen Chenoweth, who was a representative from Idaho. Uh, Ruby Ridge was in her district. And there were there were some representatives who saw militia members as a key component of their base and were running a politics that fed into the fears and the politics of those militias, whether it was around uh, absolute access to uh, weapons of war and to guns, um, whether it was about uh, spreading conspiracy theories about the UN and the federal government taking over 
national parks or um, invading land out west. This was something that politicians played into. Um, and it, it wouldn't necessarily be a direct line between, say, Newt Gingrich and Timothy McVeigh, but they were part of a kind of radicalization that was happening in both politics and culture at the time that the Republican Party, frankly, wasn't careful enough about helping to tamp down. As the Republican Party is growing closer, for instance, to the National Rifle Association, you see the head of the NRA at that time talking about federal agents as jackbooted government thugs um, right before the Oklahoma City bombing. So playing into the same language, the same paranoia, the same fears um, that would ultimately lead to the Oklahoma City bombing. And now we have some members of the new House Republican majority talking about abolishing the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms bureau of the federal government altogether. So uh, maybe another straight line from the 90s to today. Uh, last question. Later in 93, Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor of New York. He was not seen as kind of MAGA insane then as he is now by many people, though he was very racially polarizing by design and belief. Um, but Nicole, does Rudy Giuliani's election during Clinton's first year or anything about Rudy as mayor come up in your book? So the one thing that comes up about Rudy Giuliani in my book is actually the role that he played in helping to advance the conservative media ecosystem, which is he pulled strings behind the scenes in order to get Fox News to air in New York City, um, which was a, a vast audience that it needed in order to succeed. And then that was kind of the launching pad for Fox News to uh, succeed in in later years. Um, but that's his that's his wow. one cameo. Yeah. Steve, 20 seconds. Is there a Rudy cameo in your book? Yeah. Well, the Rudy in my book is the one who in 1994 turns around and endorses Mario Cuomo for re-election as governor <laughs> of New York. Remember, he had a big feud with uh, he had a big feud with Al D'Amato and Al D'Amato was Pataki's guy. And, and yeah, the Rudy of the of the mid 90s certainly had that image of tough on crime. But he also played up uh, social liberalism and um, was not seen nationally by Republicans as a um, uh, uh, certainly what he would be in the Trump years. And that concludes our series, The Year of Bill and Rudy, How 1993 Helped Give Us the World of 2023. And we thank our final guests, Nicole Hammer, author of Partisans, The Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. That's a new book. And Steve Kornacki, author of 2018's The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. Thanks so much to both of you. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday.